Hey, I'm, I'm Ellen Sampadoniel and um, I'm a student in sixth form and I became interested in Mary Wollstonecraft's work uh, for my A-levels and I came across the diary um, because one of my teachers let me know about it and um, I'm sitting here with two of the three editors um, who are going to tell me a bit more about it. So I'm Mark Philp. Uh, I've worked on Godwin for a long time. Uh, I'm a member of the Department of Politics and International Relations at Oxford. Um, and uh, I worked uh, with David O'Shaughnessy, who's also here, uh, to digitise and edit uh, the diary. Um, so, David. Hi, I'm David O'Shaughnessy. Uh, I'm a Leary Murray Career Fellow in English at the University of Warwick. Uh, and as Mark said, we've been working on the diary for about five years now, um, uh, since we got funding from the Liverpool Trust to produce a digital edition of the diary from the manuscripts held uh, at the Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford. Uh, they've been there for quite a while now. They were acquired by uh, the library in 2004 after uh, some uh, generous funding from the National Heritage Fund. So Godwin was lived from 1756 to 1836, uh, a convenient 80-year span. He was the, I think, fourth child of seven to uh, a dissenting clergyman in uh, Suffolk and Norfolk. He moved around a bit because there were various disagreements with the, his congregation. Um, he, from a very early age, uh, aspired to become uh, a dissenting minister, uh, rather against his uh, parents' wishes. Um, he was clearly a, a very able child. He read a, a lot, um, uh, but a lot of it was very kind of devotional literature. Um, so when he was a very small child, he, he would go to bed reading stories of children who died well. Uh, it's the kind of thing that people thought was a good idea in those days. He was sent to, uh, at his insistence, he was first of all sent to the local village school and then went to study uh, for a dissenting seminary under a, a man called Samuel Newton who lived in Nor Nor uh, Norwich. Uh, Newton was uh, a bit of a tyrant who resorted to uh, corporal punishment on a regular basis, which Godwin just found completely objectionable. Um, and after about three or four years, he, he sort of came, uh, he said he wouldn't go anymore. Uh, and they had a six or nine month break and then went back, finished his education. And then uh, was accepted at a dissenting academy. He'd applied to Homerton, uh, but they'd rejected him because they thought his religious beliefs were so hyper-Calvinist, so, um, uh, I mean, Calvin is thought to have damned 99 out of 100 souls. Godwin was thought to be a Sandemanian, that is following the, the uh, Sanderman who had a kind of dissenting sect, who was thought to have damned 99 out of the, the one, uh, out of the people saved by Calvin. Uh, so he, and the Sandemanians believed that uh, if your uh, thoughts and beliefs were kind of pure and if you were were in receipt of God's light, then you would not disagree with the other people within your community. So the expectation was on unanimity in all decision-making matters. Uh, 
And there is evidence that Godwin did have that kind of view and held that view pretty consistently um, in various kind of forms, uh, even while he was writing kind of political justice. So he trained as a dissenting minister. As soon as he started practicing, his faith started to crumble. Um, one of his parishioners in Stowmarket lent him uh, Helvetius and Rousseau and Holbach, and that then blew uh, most of Godwin's received ideas sort of uh, rather out of the water. And he moved, uh, as David said, into London in uh, 1783. Uh, there were a group of them trying to make a living, uh, partly by writing and so on, partly by borrowing, uh, partly by engaging in mercantile activities. Um, and it looks like Godwin may have spent at least one night in prison uh, for debt um, at, at, that at that period of his life. One of his old tutors invited him in, uh, towards the end of 1783 to write the section for the new annual register providing a review of British and foreign history for the year. And that gave him a regular income and that then introduced him into literary circles, and that formed the basis for uh, his kind of stability between 1783 and the end of the, um, the 17, and the beginning of the 1790s. In 1791, he proposed to the publisher of the New Annual Register, Robinson, that he write inquiry concerning political justice, which was supposed to be a review of and development of uh, basic political principles reflecting on the material that had come out of France and Britain over the last 40 or 50 years. Robinson agreed on pretty generous terms. I mean, Godwin in the end probably made about £1,000 from the publication of Political Justice. Uh, but the, the major part of the deal was that Robinson would support him uh, financially while he wrote the book. Um, so from September 1791, he devoted himself wholeheartedly to the writing of uh, the inquiry. Uh, and it took him about um, a year and a half. It was eventually finished in the beginning of 1793. Uh, as I said, he worked pretty much for four or five hours in the morning, uh, and then he'd go and, and visit. He would read sort of in the early morning and also sometimes in the evening. Uh, what started as a kind of uh, a development of and a critical engagement with people like Montesquieu and Rousseau and the French became, though, a much more substantial work. Um, it's really in book two where he focuses in on the question of the individual's private, private judgment and the importance of not interfering with people's private judgment that his own argument begins to take, play, to take shape. Uh, and he basically adopts the, principles that the, the principle that there's no basis for interfering with people's judgment, that the only way in which you can make progress as a society is allowing people to think for themselves and to deliberate amongst themselves. Uh, and that insofar as you allow that, their capacities for doing so will develop. The extent to which they are able to control themselves both you know, their actions, but also physiological processes will then uh, increase. Uh, and towards the end of the book, in book eight, he begins to speculate about the possibilities for uh, you know, future immortality. But on the way, what he's done is basically argued that uh, there's no real place for government, there's no real place for law, there's no real place for punishment, there's no real place for the superintendence of any form of opinion whatsoever. 
that's what makes him an anarchist, but he's a philosophical anarchist. He believes in uh, individuals judging for themselves to the fullest possible extent. Uh, he's not a bomb-throwing anarchist because he thinks the most important aspect of, uh, you know, is the development of mind um, and that everything needs to be done to stimulate and encourage people to, 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 to think for themselves. Uh, and you can't do that by government activity because insofar as government activity attempts to do it through the imposition of authority, then you're stopping people from thinking for themselves and stopping people reaching their own kinds of conclusions. So he wrote Political Justice. It was published in 1793 with tremendous success. Following year, Caleb Williams, another success. He also wrote a major pamphlet uh, at the beginning of the treason trials defending his friends who were being accused of treason. Um, so he becomes an absolutely central figure for the, uh, for the 1790s. By the end of the 1790s, the reaction has set in, uh, and Godwin becomes somebody that uh, people poke fun at in anti-Jacobin novels, uh, that people denounce from the pulpit, uh, as Samuel Parr did, uh, and in public lectures, as James Mackintosh does. Godwin has a sense that his reputation is beginning to fall apart, He's remarried, um, having married Mary Wollstonecraft in 1797 and I mean, her dying only three or four months later, leaving him with kind of two children. He was desperate to find somebody to look after his family and he marries Mary Jane Claremont in the beginning of 1801. Uh, and from that time, he's trying to support a large family um, with diminishing interest in his own work and that one of the things that he then tries to do is to set up a children's publisher and bookshop uh, as a way of making money for them. But that lasts from about 1805 to 1820, and it's a disaster story, really, financially, from beginning to end. It produces some fantastic stuff. I mean, the Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare uh, were commissioned by Godwin. Um, there are lots of very important kind of children's books published, but uh, he's just not a good manager. Francis Place comes in to try and help him sort out his accounts for two or three years. Uh, and at the end of it, just throws up his hands in despair because he can't see how Godwin deals with money. But that's partly because Godwin is often giving lots of it away. Uh, if he sees somebody in need, he thinks he ought to help them. Um, so the last sort of 30 years of Godwin's life is... Uh, well, it's generally thought of as a complete disaster and, and he, he's living out as a kind of failure. And in the end, in, after the Reform Act of 1832, the Whigs provide him with a sinecure within the Houses of Parliament. Um, and the, the not altogether true story is that uh, he was responsible for uh, ensuring that uh, the building didn't catch fire, which, of course, it did catch fire. And, uh, uh, 1834, I think it is, uh, and on his watch. Uh, so the philosophical anarchist maybe was a more practical one after all. Uh, but in fact, I think those last 30 to 40 years of his life are much more complicated than we've really understood. And actually one of the things that's come out of the work on the diary is a growing sense of Godwin's importance in a range of circles. Uh, and a growing sense of the importance of his own writing at this time. Because there are a number of novels that he produces. He writes a history of the Commonwealth. He writes a history of Chaucer. There's a lot of activity, intellectual activity going on there. 
Uh, and you know, I think we haven't really come to grips altogether with it. One of the reasons, Mark, of course, that he has access to so many circles and so many different groups of people is because of his output. I think it's fair to say that Godwin is a genuine polymath. We know him as a novelist and philosopher, a political philosopher today, uh, but he's a playwright, an essayist, historian, critic, educational theorist, biographer, um, and his output is, is impressive. And when we think more and when we look at the diary and consider his writing not only as, 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 own, as own creative uh, product, but also as a distillation of the incredible amount of reading that he does throughout his life. Godwin sees himself very much as someone uh, who is a part of, of a, a development of, of political ideas. So he, he looks back to the kind of French materialist philosophers that, that Mark mentions. He also reads uh, Hume and British moral philosophers. And he sees things developing from that. So he, 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 he integrates himself into this, this philosophical chain uh, and he sees things developing, developing further. Um, Throughout his, his, his long life, one could use quite a lot of adjectives to describe Godwin, and, and people, people did, uh, and, and which, which made him contradictory. Uh, but one of his central tenets was, uh, he writes, um, I think it's in the beginning of the Enquirer's collection of essays from 1797, that you don't understand something, you don't write something because you understand it, you understand something after you, you write it. And this is a, so we have to think about Godwin as a fluid thinker, someone who develops his thought in response to not only historical and intellectual events, but to his own, his own social circle, uh, his, his relationships, his friendships. Uh, you know, at, at one point in the diary, he, he lists his, his 25 most important acquaintances and he, and, he, and he marks the order in which he meets them so you can see him trying to think about his intellectual development, both in response to his, his reading and his writing, but also uh, to do with his, his socialising. Conversation is very, very central to his thinking. He sees this as facilitating a clash of mind with mind, and this provokes new ideas, most of which, he says, will, will fall by the wayside, but some of them will take root, and this is the path to, to political justice. His writing, and one of the reasons he, he, he uses so many different types of, of genres, he, he, he communicates his ideas in different ways, is because he's always, always thinking about how to advance political justice, even in the, the, the later years. He's thinking about how, what is the best vehicle for communication, is the phrase he uses in Caleb Williams. But we have to bear this in mind throughout his whole career. So positions that may seem contradictory, and perhaps are contradictory, uh, need to be understood with, with a greater sense of, of how he thinks, how he thinks about, he doesn't see himself as the culmination of truth. Truth is something that, that exists in the future, but he's certainly part, he's part, he sees himself as part of the process of working towards that, which will include error, necessarily so. And, and the other, I mean, if you think a bit about his personality, he's quite difficult to, exp to, to describe. No, would ever, no one would ever describe him as a wit. Uh, He's a very serious man. They, they, his nickname was the philosopher. Uh, he's not a sparkling conversationalist. Uh, I mean, it's pretty clear in the 1790s that he's talking a lot to, to people, but he, nobody sort of says, you know, most brilliant conversation we've gone with. And in the, uh, in the last 30 years of his life, a number of people write some rather cruel things about Godwin falling asleep in various kinds of... 
dinner parties and sort of uh, in the middle of discussions and not having a word to say for himself and so on. Uh, but and it's very difficult to know how far that's true on all occasions and how far it's just sort of particular people having an axe to grind. I mean, Lee Hunt is pretty hor- horrible about it, and um, as is uh, Crab Robinson. Uh, but you know, there are uh, there are the more kind of positive takes on him. But one of the things that does mark him is that. It, Candor, which was a central tenet of the kind of rationalist dissent sort of tradition, that you speak your mind and you communicate your thoughts as clearly and as forcefully as you can, remains absolutely ingrained for him. Um, well, we, we have to say, I think we have, have to well, interject here and say that he believes very much in practicing it, and he will be yeah. very happy to tell people <laughs> how terrible they are and their flaws and failings. However, when people attempted to do that to him, he uh, didn't respond terribly well, I think. And you see this in his, in his close relationship with Thomas Holcroft, who's his best friend at Holcroft. Um, they exchange uh, writing and they, they, they read each other's work, and Godwin is, is um, not hesitant to point out problems, shall we say. Uh, where, uh, and Holcroft, too, in, in a genuine sense, and I think it's true that Holcroft is genuinely trying to help Godwin be successful, whereas Godwin is pointing out political or philosophical problems with Holocaust writing. Um, but Godwin gets very upset. Uh, and uh, uh, so, so, yes, candor would tend to be one way, I think. I think that's probably right. And, uh, I mean, there is a list he drew up in his papers called Ami Perdu, Lost Friends, uh, probably drawn up around 1803, 1804, maybe 1805. And there's a long kind of list of people who he was very close to and saw a great deal of, but where their relationships have just broken up partly because of you know this commitment to candor, uh, and partly because Godwin finds it very difficult to get it back, uh, partly also because I think what is happening in this period around sort of the, the beginning of the 19th century is that the the old sort of circles of kind of uh, radical literary circles of, of the 1790s really have begun to break up partly because of government repression, partly because people are moving away, because it's no longer a sense that this is where the action is. Uh, and Godwin loses many of his friends. He still sees lots of people, but the core group that had been central to the, his kind of intellectual development in the 1790s does begin to fall 